This show is a part of the FM Podcast Network, the home of great music podcasts. Visit us at fmpods.com. You are listening to the Dylan Ponce Podcast. Welcome to Dylan Taunts in another segment of What Is It About Bob Dylan? I'm Erin Callahan and I'm sitting here with the esteemed Harold Lapidus. Um, Harold is the author of Friends and Other Strangers, Bob Dylan Examined, a panelist uh, at the World of Dylan in 2019, where he talked about Bob Dylan, Street Legal and the Ghost of Elvis, and an invited guest at the pre-grand opening ceremonies at the Bob Dylan Center in 2022. And he also hosts the Boston Herald podcast. Welcome. Thanks for having me. Thanks for agreeing to do this. This is fantastic. All right, so we always start with the question, what is it about Bob Dylan? Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, for me, uh, the, you know, it's one of the, like Bob Dylan himself who can make multitudes. Um, there are many aspects, but the, the basic thing, aside from the enjoying, you know, listening to his music and, and, and feeling it, is that it helps me think differently, as um, as the ad goes. Uh, he he made so many artistic left turns that even I joined it late. But uh, it, it's like, why are you doing this? <laughs> and um, and eventually, it all made sense, or you know, or enough. And or at least maybe question everything, including Bob Dylan, and, as well as the world and everything, the news, everything, and uh, uh, it continues to happen. And I still get, um, uh, you know, not sidetracked, uh, yeah, whatever. But I, you know, like when I heard Murder Moss Foul, I wouldn't, I didn't say, go, wow, I get this. <laughs> you know, it's it just, it's the type of thing where it just took a while. And I was patient, and eventually, um, it made more and more sense. And now, you know, I, I, I think it's brilliant. And I think that um, there are a few things. I think he that's such a fitting tribute that he encourages you to see the world through a different lens. And so, how beautiful! Um, but also that you have to be patient with Dylan. And that was such a lovely point to make that um, you don't get everything right away, and you're not supposed to. I mean. We're in, you know, sixty odd years into his career, and we're still debating certain aspects of it. So I love that. And I just want to say, if you hear any background noise, we are currently at the World of Dylan 2023, and there are people outside this room. So apologies for the distractions. So in that vein, um, I was going to ask, what was your entry point to Dylan, or how did you come to Dylan? And then that follow up, because you're a writer. Um, and how did you know seeing Dylan through or seeing the world through a different lens because of Dylan? How did that influence your own writing? So where how did you come in, and then how does it help you do what you do? Do you want the long answer or the really long answer? I want whatever <laughs> you whatever you want to share. Okay. Well, um, uh, yeah, I was um, yeah. So, like when I was five years old, is when the Beatles were on. At Sullivan, I didn't see them, but I became a Beatles fan, mm -hmm. uh, and then the Monkeys and the Beatles and everything, and uh, uh, then yeah, uh, then uh, 1969, um, I got a transistor radio, and I, I, it opened an entire world, and it, it like I would I get a dollar a week allowance, and I would buy 45s, and uh, got a, a grown-up record player, 
there's everything from like the Temptations and Sign the Family Stone to uh, Johnny Cash to Glenn Campbell to Honky Tonk Women to Plastic Ono Band. It's like whatever uh, whatever I liked. I mean, I uh, and um, and it opened up the the world, and it's one of those things that made me very happy in the world. And then there are two people I didn't get icons: Elvis Presley with In the Ghetto and Bob Dylan with Lay Lady Lay. I mean, I'd look, I'd see it, it somehow must have seen Elvis in Jailhouse Rock or something, and I hear In the Ghetto, and it's like, mm-hmm. what is this? And Lay Lady Lay, and you look at the cover of Blonde on Blonde, and it's like, what is this? Although, I'll give my sister credit, she's two and a half years younger, but she bought the Lay Lady Lay single. She's the first person in the house mm-hmm. to, to, to ever buy a Bob Dylan record All right. for themselves. Um, but I had a friend, uh, Danny, uh, uh, who I'd known since like what we would call preschool, or nursery school, or whatever they used to call it, and um, he he had a uh, we were next door neighbors. Then we moved far, a little bit apart, you know, different towns, but we stayed in touch. And uh, he had uh, his family had a, an au pair, and when the au pair left and went back to England, she left her mono copy of Bring It All Back Home. And my friend Danny said, "This is great," you know, he, he loved it, and I would look at it and like. Even I just looked at it, it's like I don't get it. Like the Beatles, to me, there's before the Beatles, the Beatles, and after the Beatles. Like the Beatles were everything. They were, they were the, you know, and the monkeys were pretty close. Mm-hmm. And um, and you know, I was I wasn't gonna like it. I mean, I knew it was important, but I didn't get it. I and I didn't know exactly. Uh, you know, you know. You didn't know why. You know, you didn't like why. you know, you have long straight hair down. You don't have curly hair up. Even though I used to have curly hair up. Um and um. So uh, he kept on going at it, and then when I was 13, he got he convinced his parents to get me Greatest Hits Volume 2 on vinyl. And it was after the concert for Bangladesh, so I, was, I really wanted to learn about this guy, because I remember after the day after the concert for Bangladesh, in the paper it had a big picture of Bob with two Beatles on either side, I and mean, George calls them the economy class Beatles. <laughs> and um, it's like Bob was the news. It's like one one Bob is worth more than two Beatles. Like you know, so mm-hmm. getting more and more excited. And uh, so uh, I remember I put the record on, and side one was like a Beatles record. It was like four voices, four types of music, and you know, it was, it was a superficial thing. But I was like, well, he's cool. I don't know if I get it. But you know, and that happened, and right. I just kept on buying whatever came out. You know, Pat Gary and Billy the Kid, and that Dylan album with Lily of the West, and my friend Danny. When I had a, we went like for instance in, in '72 for my birthday. You saw Grand Funk. I went. My father brought me and Dan when I went to see Emerson Lincoln Palmer the next December. You know, I, I brought Danny. Um, so when I saw a big full page ad in the Sunday New York Times, Arts and Leisure section, you know, very. Um, uh, uh, Minimalist. I just said Bob Dylan slash the band, and it was mostly white. And the bottom said two days at the Nassau Coliseum. I'm from New York, and three mm-hmm. in um, uh, Nassau Square Garden. And I said, I can't possibly ask for tickets because you know <laughs> I don't even know if I, I don't even know if I like them. I not didn't like them. I didn't get them certainly. Right. And I suddenly it wasn't like you know a Beatle or something. And um, and it was a mail order lottery thing, and it was um, and then. Danny's friend's sister somehow had an extra ticket, and he said, um, "You know, can my friend Harold have it?" And it's like, and I was so excited. And um, then it, yeah, I got uh, Planet Ways before the show, and it just completely blew my mind, as I used to say. And uh, like, like I could, like I couldn't believe what I was seeing. 
and, and you can hardly see we're on the other end of the Nassau Coliseum. Uh, and I felt I felt actually unworthy of going because I didn't know enough. And my so, and so my friend, yeah, he went. Is, uh, uh, um, it was my friend Danny, his friend Steve Kessler, and his older sister Sharon, who was in the front seat. And they're talking about things like you know Great White Wonder, and I don't know what they're talking about. And they're saying, well, I hope he does Rainy Day Women. And it's like, well, I don't know about that, but I thought that there's that song called uh, Everybody Must Get Stoned. I hope he does that. Like I like I knew nothing. Right. And I may have not even heard like a Rolling Stone before the show. Mm -hmm. And it just it, everything was just so cool. Like they came out and they, it was very subversive. They came out and tuned their guitars. There's the store like they had like a lamp and a couch. Like I started like Palmer had a drum that went in the air and turned around, mm -hmm. and um, uh, they tuned their guitars. It, 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 I, my memory is that the guitars are much more loud and crackling than any recording I've heard, and it could just be my imagination. But um, uh, you know, they did. Most likely, you'll go your way, I'll go mine, which I read about. I hadn't heard it before, mm -hmm. and then you did "Lay Lady Lay" really fast and loud, and it, it's like, like, like it was. Like, like, this is it. <laughs> it's a come to Bob moment, <laughs> and uh, it kept on, it kept on getting better and better. And like, and then the band came on. I mean, they were backing Dylan. Mm -hmm. They did their set, and um, and actually, uh, like, I didn't know till the Sunday before the show when I was listening to a radio program that they did the night they drove old Dixie down. Like, I thought it was a John Baez song. I mean, I mean, it was right. John Baez song, but um, I didn't know. I looked at my single. It's like, oh, J. R. Robertson must be R for Rob. And they had a, a unique sound, and I, I bought Moondog Matinee because I didn't think, I don't know if I would like them because they seemed like they were time travelers from the Civil War, and it's like, and I, you know, I couldn't believe that a synthesizer, it seemed like sacrilege, I mean, how they have right. such, such a modern instrument. And so they were great, they were good. They started off with stage fright, which was even, which, which it's supposedly not about Dylan, but Dylan hadn't toured for eight years, and um, so, uh, they're doing stage fright, which I only seen the album cover stage fright, so I knew it was the song. And it was like, it was, there's all this mythical stuff that I don't know if anyone has this anymore, but it, it, rock stars and musicians, they were just more mysterious back then. But there's also like that, what you're kind of describing is that religious experience that people are spiritual, you know, connection that we have mm -hmm. in that moment. It's what Paul Williams explains about that ephemeral moment with Dylan. And I think a lot of us who love him have had that experience of, I mean, my youth, I was like, it's like going to big church. Right. <laughs> you yeah. know, that, that's how I felt about it. Yeah, because I remember growing up, I mean, it, uh, I would say that first happened to me with the Beatles, like, mm -hmm. you're looking around in those days and people still had like crew cuts and it's just like, it, it was just, everything seemed like black and white and cold and it was, you know, post-Kennedy and all that sort of stuff. And the Beatles come around and it's like, youth and vitality and fun and mm -hmm. like I remember I loved the Beatles before I had the record well the only thing they could do is let me down you know what I mean it's, I already love them right what did they sound like <laughs> and then um, no so, pressure no pressure and then yes and, and going and getting back to the Dylan thing but um, you know and then he did the acoustic set with just a guitar it was a, a real acoustic guitar not the ones I have now where they plug in right and he was doing those songs really fast and yeah you know, I basically like guitar, bass, rock and roll, mm -hmm. occasional acoustic, occasional piano, you know, you know, okay. sitars for the Beatles. But um, <laughs> uh, but it did, that opened that whole genre too in a way that um, uh, that uh, in, yeah, just like the whole 
you know, that doesn't open the world as a, as a um, whole uh, other kind of genre within popular music and led me to here talking to you right now. What a great experience. And how has it influenced your writing? You know, your, your relationship, your fandom, um, your experiences with Dylan? Um, well, what I, uh, what I wanted to do ever since I, like I do have a degree in journalism mm -hmm. and a um, bachelor of arts degree and I, uh, but when I wanted, yeah, I read a lot of stuff, it's you know, Cream Magazine and my father used to be in Cream Magazine, Circus, Hit Parader, Crawdaddy, you know, every month or whatever. And mm -hmm. I, you know, read whatever I thought that was interesting. And so that that's my that's my literary references, <laughs> and um, those are great. And uh, but when when I started writing, I uh, and found my voice. I realized I didn't really want to be negative. I didn't want to be particularly fanboyish either. But it's mm -hmm. like as I'm understanding things and uh, and uh, like you get a new Dylan album or other people, uh, it's like. What is he doing? What does this mean? Why, you know, if I, 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 I want to explore it and share it. Mm -hmm. um, and what happens now, uh, usually, thanks to all these circumstances, uh, often they'll they'll let me have access to an album two weeks before it comes out, and you have that's all I listen to whenever a chance for two weeks, and I have to figure out and come up with what. There's an embargo, and so you can't till uh, uh, you know Friday, whatever at midnight. Right. Uh, you can't post it. So whatever I'm doing is going to be my opinion. No one can say, "Well, you read it there and you stole that idea." So I, I try to come up with something unique, mm -hmm. and um, and it's like anything. You just it's like and the pressure's on, and and it's a privilege, mm -hmm. and. Uh, I know people are particularly waiting for it, but they when they hopefully when they read it they're not disappointed. And I uh, um, like for instance on um, when Rough and Rowdy Ways came out or before it came out, uh, I'm listening, yeah, listening to all the songs, trying to figure it out. And there was a song, uh, um, uh, my own version of you, and yeah, and uh, <laughs> she she just put her hand on. Her yeah, <laughs> there's no video <laughs> there's with no this, video. but I did. I, I put my hand on my chest like, oh, <laughs> love that song. Um, and and then when I it just hit me like he's talking, you know, we everything I'm saying is my opinion. I don't of know course. what Bob thinks. I don't want to say that, you know, he never answers my phone calls. Who would presume <laughs> to know what Bob thinks, right? So, um, and, and I thought, like, well, he's talking about his own uh, artistic process. Mm -hmm. And I heard pe other people say it here, and I was, I'm not saying people got it from me. Maybe they did. Maybe they did, and I'm not, that's not what I'm saying, because, uh, but I am saying that no one said it before me. Like, I, I, I can prove, you know. And um, I take pride in whenever I come up with any of those ideas like that. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I, uh, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not very good at hanging up pictures on a wall, but I, <laughs> but I can, you know, I don't, I don't vacuum enough. But um, uh, I can uh, certainly listen to Bob Dylan and uh, um, uh, think about it and think about it over years and years and years of uh, practice. And uh, and uh, come up with hopefully something. That's one one of the things, and I appreciate you sharing that. One of the things I love about Dylan studies is that, by and large, we all want to just have a conversation and suss this stuff out. And you know, we did on our panel that we just had, 
but we're all very positive and supportive of each other. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think when we question each other, it's not questioning in an aggressive way. Mm -hmm. um, we're questioning because it's sort of like, oh, that's an interesting perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, I love that you took that approach that you don't want to be negative and you don't want to be fanboyish right, right. <laughs> um, because that comes off as disingenuous and I, I I've always enjoyed everything I've read of yours and I'm not saying that to be fangirlish I'm not standing on you but um, I definitely I, I think you have an interesting perspective and there's just a, you, you give us a lovely space for those opinions so I, I appreciate yeah, I, that I, mean, I try to make it's like this is this is what I think that's mm -hmm. all it is it's right like, I think this this and um, yeah people come from from different angles they have different perspectives and they have different uh, prejudices and everything and like I talked about uh, Dylan and the Dead album uh, here at the, at the center and uh, because there's so many people that hate that whole thing and I don't I, and you don't you can hate it all you want it's like but it's like to say that it, it, it's a mistake uh, like I, I like you know it's funny because you know that you know Bruce Springsteen said Bob Dylan open, open your mind mm -hmm. and it's like not completely <laughs> or in some, in some cases and it's like it, it's it's like open your mind it's almost like if Bob Dylan it's like this is awful I'm gonna figure it out that, 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 right. don't criticize what you can't understand <laughs> that, did you just think of that no I mean, I'm not gonna yawn one of that you might have to edit that out um, but no, I. But he's not on Rolling Stone anymore. No, he's not. Um, but all right, so I want to, because we, I'll just sit here and listen to you talk. But I want to. There are things that I want to know. So mm -hmm. the list of people you've interviewed is impressive. Mm -hmm. um, and so, what was your favorite interview and why? And then, how do you decide who you're going to interview? Um, That's a lot of questions all at once. <laughs> well, if, if I look confused, you can say, "And what was that other part?" Um, so uh, the way uh, I will answer that there's. Uh, these aren't particularly Dylan-related uh, uh, interviews, but they're they're basically two. They're people that I know or kind of know, either in real life or virtually. Or mm -hmm. and then there are, there's just like a, the the, uh, the promo person that whatever uh, uh, sets something up, and it's a it's a cold interview, and the person doesn't know who you are, and when it's over, it's over, and you never hear from them again. Right. <clears throat> so uh, so the my. But but these two interviews that I'm thinking of changed the trajectory of my life to a certain extent. Okay. So um, I became a fan of Robin Hitchcock in 1980. I read about him in Trouser Press. I went to um, England in 1981. He just it was the only gig he did in that era, mm -hmm. and you know it, it was you know it blew me away. Similarly, not as much as the Dylan the band thing, but it was it, I saw everybody that I saw the Clash and the Jam and. The, but the soft boys that's it's amazing like, well when you're older you know as you mentioned almost everybody was older than the um, younger than the traveling wilburys in your no they're <laughs> younger than everybody i think almost in that room except yeah. for roy orbison yeah yeah and even yeah. some folks were older than roy orbison at 52. okay he's uh, harold's <laughs> pointing to himself yeah i'm, I'm older i'm older yeah, last night at um so Rob, did you go to that Robbie folks? I did. So at, at one point, he did a song from Street Legal, mm -hmm. and he said, uh, "What year did it come out?" And the guy behind me is going 1977. I'm going 1978. And he goes, "Thank you, old white guy over 60 or something." <laughs> Thank you, stereotypical Dylan fan. <laughs> but we're trying to broaden and yeah, diversify. Right, right. I, I finally get somewhere, and it's like I'm like I'm I'm being marginalized. Oh. Not really. I'm just kidding. All right. right. So I, Robin Hitchcock was one of my right, favorite. So, right. Why? So, and so uh, it took me 
30, almost literally 33 in the third year to get an interview from that show. And uh, we, like he, he knew who I was, but he didn't know who I was. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so we did the interview, so we got to know each other. Um, then uh, I went to see him and his, uh, his current wife, I think they were, uh, I didn't know, any, I didn't even know they were an item, but it was the opening act. Mm-hmm. And so I contacted oh, him. Oh, Emma Swift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So uh, he, uh, I contacted him as like, oh, I'd like to interview her, and you know, I'm seeing you tomorrow night, let's try to figure this out. And because um, yeah, a lot of modern music, I cannot, um, I, can, I don't get it. But she was very traditional. And, and so uh, she started singing the song Bittersweet, and I thought, yeah, it's a good song, and uh, she's an unknown, she needs my help. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, you know, I didn't know anything about it until I, by the time the interview happened, it's, obviously there were a couple, but I didn't mm-hmm. know that when I started this. Yeah, she's great. Yeah. And um, so I interviewed her, and that led to something, uh, to a dialogue between us. And then um, uh, then he had, he did, uh, Robin Hitchcock, for whatever reason, was in Somerville on March 3rd, 2017, which was his 64th birthday. And Al Cooper lives in the area. Mm-hmm. And I contacted Al Cooper, and I said, you know, and they played together briefly at Newport. It's like, you know, I just said he's playing in, in Somerville, and he said, well, let me know when soundcheck is, and I let Robin know, and he didn't even think he just wanted to be on the guest list. It's like, and it's like, you mean he wants to play? And so, uh, so the whole thing, it's like, I will never top this musically. So that's awesome. It's, so, it's one of those moments. Yeah, yeah I, I was sitting there the whole time with my mouth. I'm like, because not only was it amazing, but the music was amazing. So mm-hmm. he said, so he did three songs. He did a half hour of Blonde on Blonde with Al Cooper on organ. And, um, and Emma came out and sang one of the songs. Amazing. And, and Vision of Johan, which is his favorite song, Just Like a Woman. And then he did Said I'd Late. And oh, um, goodness. so it was, uh, I never really, I haven't really spoken to him about it. And I don't know all the details about how it all went down or whatever but it was like you know that that cause if I didn't interview him he wouldn't have known who I was I wouldn't have gone seen them uh, and I wouldn't have contacted Al Cooper and, and none of that would have happened so that right. so that that's something that, and, and, and and we are um, uh, in you know whenever he, you know, I don't want to go too much about it but um, he, he you know he will always say hello to me and like hey, and, you know blah 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 <laughs> I don't I don't want to embarrass him he's British you know but um, uh, 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 and the other one was it was a cold interview setup, which is Yorma Kaukinen of Jefferson Airplane and Hot Tuna. Hot okay. Tuna was like my band in the mid seventies, okay. like my sort of secret band that no one really understood. I would go see him at Comac, mm-hmm. uh, Long Island. They uh, changed his name every year. Went to that show. Well, like I went three in the afternoon to stay in line. It was general admission. All these older hippies around and watch him play guitar and uh, you know. At that point, they were really loud rock band. They were like 10, 15 minute solos, and I was just totally into it. And, All right. And then, so I, so there was a, we were trying to get this interview going, and then it's like canceled and moved, and then it's like, and then all of a sudden it's like, it's tomorrow, and then at six, and I already another one scheduled at seven. So I did this interview, and I, and I purposely did not ask him about Woodstock, Altamont, Monterey. Jazz Chaplin or Garcia, yeah, which is, which is you know, and I, I talked about what he was up to, mm-hmm. what I knew, and yeah, you know, towards and like he, you can tell because he always I see his interviews, and so I was like, he had the same answers. That I don't, right. I want to get something that adds to the dialogue. And at the end, he's saying he has a, a, a fur piece ranch in Ohio where he 
gives lessons and stuff. He says, if, if you're ever here, I will give you a tour. And at the end he says, I'm playing in Boston, I want you to be my guest. And it's like, you know, so, really so, cool. so that, and then that, but, but besides that, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't know how many pros here, but, but what it led to was me, like, I don't have all his albums. I don't have, I only had a hand, I made, I have some of his albums. Right. But I'm, I'm going getting the quadraphonic version of this, and I'm getting the, you know, the, if I had it on CD, I got it on vinyl, I'm getting Right, right. So I, I got, I've got the last missing piece. Uh, I just got it. It was like something that was only on CD for a while, and I had it on vinyl, but a bonus track. So um, so that, so I listened to that over and over again, and I've seen him a bunch of times. Went to Carnegie Hall uh, for the Hot Tuna concert. Mm-hmm. Larry Campbell and Teresa were there. So it's that, you know, it's anything, it, anything that brightens your life like that. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's, worth, it's worth talking about. Well, well yeah. So um, I don't know. <laughs> it's weird. We got sidetracked. It's, it's, yeah, it's weird talking about myself. But anyway, so those those two those are uh, you know I had a ton of interviews with people, but if I start going on and on, I'll leave people out. I feel badly. All right. But, so um, those are the top two. Those are those are, those are the two that changed my life and where when where, how I uh, uh, perceive music and, and so on. So that's great. All right, so who's someone you haven't interviewed that you would like to, and why that person? And I assumed it would be Dylan, and Harold shot back in the interview, would I want to, or in the in our emails, would I want to interview Dylan? <laughs> and so, talk to me about that a little bit. Um, I mean, if his office called me, like, let's say I put up something about this sender and the, and right. the, the, the um, not the center, the, the switchyard, right? Right. And um, uh, the conference, and... Jeff Rosen or whoever contacts me and said, you know, Bob would really like to do an interview. That's Bob talking. But, um, uh, Bob is Jeff Rosen. <laughs> There's no Jeff Rosen. Um, uh, would I turn it down? Absolutely not. But um, I don't even think it's a possibility. I think mm-hmm. also, um, uh, like Jeff Slate just did an interview. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wouldn't ask him, but I, I have a feeling when he does interviews now, they're all like, they're not in person. I feel like the questions, he gets the questions ahead of time. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, and, and they're brilliantly answered, and, but, yeah. um, you know, I Bob, Bob, if you're there, if you want to interview me, I'm not saying I won't do it, but it's not something that, it's something, yeah, not, to, not to mention the fact, the pressure. <laughs> I know, that, the, the pressure, and I always think, like, what would you ask Bob Dylan? Right. And you were just saying uh, about Hot Tuna, like, they've, they've heard all the questions. Right. So they don't want to be asked the same things over and over again, and I'm like, what would I ask? Would I ask like, where the best fishing is in Minnesota? Or right. like, what was the best Yankees team? Right. I know someone who, uh, 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 Cindy Bailing's her name. She's on, uh, she was a Boston DJ and she's on PBS and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, when I gave a talk about the uh, my book, she talked, She said she met him at the backstage of a Tom Petty concert at Madison Square Garden and asked, he asked me, what do you do? It's like, I'm a DJ. And I believe what he said was, you know what I miss? local radio stations that's cool and it's like you know the with the individual flavor mm-hmm. and so um yeah I, I wouldn't ask him i don't think i would ask him about him at all i would just ask him about stuff uh, not politics right just no. you know um you know and i you know you have connections, you can set it up, right? No, I have no connections. <laughs> Not even a little bit. Um, but yeah, there's just a... So is there any anyone else that you would like to interview? Yeah, there's a, there's a few. Again, not not particularly uh, Dylan related. There's um, uh, Pete Townsend would be one. Because I... 
I can ask him, you know, he has a memoir and a lot of other things out, and I have plenty of things to ask him about that don't get covered. I think you, that he would open up about that. Right. Um, Elvis Costello, I could talk to him about Dylan within, mm-hmm. within reason. Obviously, they, they, they protect his privacy. Um, and uh, the other one that comes to mind is uh, David Bromberg, because I, uh, he, he tells all these stories but I don't think people know them, so um, I don't know. It wouldn't be necessarily new information from David Bromberg, but it'd be new to most people from playing. You know, uh, you know, his old Columbia Records contract was weird, and right. maybe how he didn't feel worthy of going to a John Lennon party. So uh, just like a different entryway yeah, into yeah, understanding yeah. something about Dylan. Yeah, that's kind of cool. I think that. All right, so you are have written about tours, and you've written about obviously the Dead tours. So, what is your favorite Dylan memory or Dylan show, and why? Um, it can be both. It could be either. No. <laughs> um, no, I. Uh, well. Yeah, I say you know, seeing Dylan in the '70s was amazing. I saw that. I saw the Rolling Thunder view, and I saw him in '78. And uh, <laughs> uh, and um, so those were you know you know you had to be there as, as John Lennon used to say. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's a story I told uh, not that long ago, but um, my, the absolutely the funniest moment I ever saw was uh, yeah. Dylan and Petty and the Heartbreakers and the Queens of Rhythm, 1986. I think it's New Haven, Connecticut. It's either New Haven or Hartford. Um, and uh, the show I'd seen I just saw the show at uh, Great Woods in Mansfield, Massachusetts and then um, uh, you know the show is you know similar mm-hmm. um, a couple of changes maybe here and there and um, and in the middle of the encore uh, Dylan starts playing Lay Lady Lay which they clearly had not rehearsed and uh it's not a, you know a difficult song to play, but it's not a, a it's not a normal chord progression progression. And Dylan seems to be just facing forward and doesn't care if anyone's joining in or can see what he's doing. So Mike Campbell is trying to watch his hands, holds his guitar up so the rest of the band can see the chords, and he starts uh, you know he just does the song, and everyone looks nervous, and the Queens of Rhythm look really nervous, and because uh, not only is he not rehearsing, but he's changing the words on the fly, and uh, you know it was it was so exciting because he didn't know what was going to happen next, and it was it was out of the blue, and it was mm-hmm. uh, yeah, literally a once in a lifetime thing. And at the end, you know, Dylan just you know shoved shoved uh, Tom Petty aside, like, "Hi, I played this joke on you," and yeah, you know, and it was the type of thing that he could, um, you know, you know, it's, it's you know that. As much as the music, the thing about the Petty Dylan tour is that Dylan was was just so funny. He was just doing things that were, you know, you know just kind of telling jokes or not jokes, but just funny little asides. Um, you know, not that I particularly saw this show, uh, but I remember he was saying that um, you know people tell me he said, before the before the acoustic part, you do a solo acoustic part, mm-hmm. and he'd say, you know, people say I, I parody myself. It's like, well, who else am I going to pray? Something like that. <laughs> or, uh, you know, it's like, you know, people say I can't sing. It's not, I just never like how to play, turn my guitar. You know, just like all these things. Yeah. And, um, uh, you know, it, it, it was, you know, it was a very lighthearted, you can tell he was starting to enjoy playing live again. Yeah. That's, you know, 
those are the moments that we need to chronicle. And I'll go back to Paul Williams, who says, like, those moments that, you know, when the inevitable mm-hmm. and unthinkable, to quote Nina Goss, mm-hmm. happens, and mm-hmm. he either stops touring or he di- he's going to die. Mm-hmm. Um, no. We, no, <laughs> no. Um, but it is. And we think about that. And we are the generation that, I mean, you more than me, and then there's some folks here who are younger, but we've seen him live. Yeah. And it's, you know, it, it is like being in Beethoven's time or watching Shakespeare, mm-hmm. and I'm not exaggerating when I say that, right. that we are, you know, sort of as torchbearers to communicate that. We can, and thankfully, there are a bunch of people who um, bootleg, so we yeah. can hear those performances. But, you know, that's, we need to kind of make sure people understand those stories. He duck walked once in Houston, and we were just, we all lost our minds, you know, and then he, we were so used to him not talking to us, right, too, right, that right. when he did, we're like, what just happened? And then he was funny, and it yeah. was just, so those things kind of, those need to be preserved, and, you know, I'm glad that we're able to do that. Um, all right, so Dylan, um, as a writer, um, so Dylan has often asserted about his songs and about songs in general, that they're not meant to be simply read or exclusively read. Uh, he said that in his Nobel lecture and most recently Philosophy of Modern Song, that great um, bit about Lenny Bruce. Since you've seen so many live performances and you've written about them, uh, will you share your thoughts on the dynamic between the words and the music in performance? Sure. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, the... Uh, well, it's interesting, um, after hearing uh, one of the presentations about it from Laura Tencher, mm-hmm. um, who doesn't understand why skinny ties are an issue. <laughs> um, the, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it, it's powerful. It's, you know, it's kind of like falling in love or something. It's like, it's a package deal. It's like, you don't say, well, I like this, this part of this person. And, you know, it's like, it, it, it's, it's, you know, it's the whole deal. You 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 are experiencing something on the stage. Uh, preferably, you can obviously watch a video, but especially in person, it's happening in front of you. And even now, when you kind of know what's happening next, you don't really know what's happening next, mm-hmm. and you don't know how he's going to phrase. You don't know if he's going to do something. Is he going to lean against the piano? Is he going to stand up? Is he going to? Pull out a Grateful Dead song. Is he gonna, mm-hmm. you know, do something? And um, um, but while I'm on that subject, it's like people who talk about the, you know, well, it's a static set list. It's like, you know, uh, you know, they want to be the one that sees the Grateful Dead song or whatever. And it's like it's more like a coolness factor than experience what it is. Uh, during the early days of the Neverending Tour. It was cheaper. I had people live, who lived in New York and New Jersey, mm-hmm. and you know I could uh, easily travel. It wouldn't cost a lot of money, and I worked for a record store, so I sometimes I get tickets for free, and I could go to a bunch of shows, and they were all different, and and that was one thing. Now, usually, if he's in the area, uh, if I, usually it's Boston and Providence. He plays a theater, and I try to, and I do go to both of them. Um, I hopefully don't sound like a snob, but if I'm not. The last time I was not up in front was when he's, it was at the Agass Arena and he was with um, Jack White's other band. Um, I can't remember what they're called. Not the White Stripes, but right. uh, not Dead Weather. Um, the Rock on Tours. Rock on Tours. There's a podcast called Rock on Tours. 
Right. But anyway, uh, so, uh, and people were just talking the I whole time. I was also at a loss. <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> people were talking the whole time. <laughs> yeah, and it's, uh, and like, it's just, you know, you could, it's like, I don't know why they went. I mean, I know, I know why they went, but it wasn't for the same reason I went. Right. I want to connect with the music. Right. And I remember, like, going, and going back to seeing Dylan and the band, we had binoculars, and mm-hmm. I did it a couple times just mm-hmm. to know what it was like, but I didn't want anything between me and what was going on, even though it was, you know, football field away right, right. Um, uh, I just want to experience what it is and uh, you know if it's something like you know Dylan and the Dead and I got bad seats I'm just glad I'm inside or it's outside but I'm glad I'm inside the gates right but uh, but these days if he's in a theater like I I I, I like that and again you know I don't know how pretentious I'm saying but no. it's like I'm not doing it because I want to be the cool person in the fourth row it's just like I don't want to be distracted by anybody well Nina said Nina Goss again. Uh, once you were in the first row, mm. it's very much like first class. Once you fly <laughs> first class, you can't even. She said, even the second row won't do. Right. Like you want to be up front right. um, and and have that experience and have that connection. Mm. And that's the thing is like being in the same space with all the people and hopefully they're having a similar experience or having some sort of shared experience from that energy but also with him and watching him do what he does and does he change phrasing does he right. change lyrics like right. that's to me the best there's, part there's, I, remember, I remember him in Avalon and sweat was dripping down his nose <laughs> and it was like you know yeah. it's not a, a major statement or anything but uh, it's like I remember it yeah of course it, it, it's you know locked in there or maybe it was tears based on some people's uh, interpretation of what he does on stage it could be all right, so we were just, uh, we were um, on a panel with Court Carney and Jeff Fallis that reconsiders Dylan's work in the 80s mm-hmm. in context of his career up to this point. Mm-hmm. And I won't say his entire career because mm-hmm. we want more from him. Right. Um, and so without giving too much of our panel discussions away, why should we reconsider and or recontextualize Dylan's work in the 80s? Um, uh, you could say that about any part of his career too, but um, mm-hmm. as... as um, people who there it's one of those things that it does have a bad reputation or to, to among, among the uneducated <laughs> the unenlightened um that it's because there's a there's a lot of good stuff there i um say in the 80s i worked in a record store and i got all these stuff all this ordered all the stuff or cds and i started with records and then cds and um and there all these you get to hear all this stuff and the Dylan stuff was still probably the most interesting out of all of it. Um, I'd go home and listen to it um, over and over again. And, you know, it seems like a lot of it just seems also like clickbait too. It's like, you know, mm-hmm. uh, down the groove sucks, read all about it. Right. And, it's like, and uh, as, um, you know, I, I've been filling in the holes in my collection on vinyl. I've had, you know, obviously different formats. And uh, so I bought Down the Groove and I put it on. I hadn't heard it all the way through probably since not that long after it came out. And it's not one you revisited quite a bit. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I listened to it, and I, you know, I thought it was basically, you know, a really good album. I, I thought it would. I think he purposely did things so it would not do. This is not the first time he's done this, but he could have put Sylvia as the opening track. Right. And it could have. And I think if he made it more like. We just changed the song order, mm-hmm. so it made more uh, thematic, more thematic flow. 
it would have been better. But I think they were just out to get on after a while. After Live Aid, all bets were off, you know? Yeah, of course. Uh, or after the Gospel Years, whatever. It's like, you know, hey, he's a has-been, as we know. We, as we, um, we were talking about. But you had made the point, which I thought was, was quite lovely, in our panel that you know what Highway 61 sounds like. You, you mean, you, you've, you've thought about it, and it's something that sort of you've internalized. But you made the point that Down in the Groove is something that you would return to. To yeah, try I, to figure it out because there's still questions. Yeah, I don't. I don't know it as well. I mean, I mean, if I when of course I listened to the cutting edge right. uh, thing, the six CD version. I listened three times in a row, and then I got a copy of the 18 CD thing, and I listened to that once, and um, and then sampled it for a while, and then moved on to the next bootleg series, whatever it was. Um, but yeah, it's like okay, well I know Highway 61. If I, I like, I remember in a car with somebody else, and they had a playlist, and uh, you know, the song Highway 61 came out it's like wow that's awesome you know to hear it like as a surprise but to go over and play it it's like when there's so many other things to listen to right like down the groove it's like 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 what down the groove Dylan the dead on vinyl because i've been to you and world gone wrong all over the last few months and you're gonna write about them now you want me to of course <laughs> um uh well uh, uh but you know, right, you write about Bob Dylan's of money losing proposition. <laughs> um, I, I do it for fun. I don't, in case anyone thinks I make any money out of it. Um, then I come here and spend a thousand dollars for the privilege of going to the Bob Dylan's. Uh, Agreed. You know, and I, I, that's fun. No one, no one made me go. I want to go. Uh, and none of this is complaining. It's all done lightheartedly, folks. We signed up for this. Right, right. And um, and you know, I'm having a great time. And mm-hmm. yeah, this is the this is a great way to. Uh, this is the last thing we're doing. Yes, it is. Um, so, uh, yeah, so I would, um, a, lot, I mean, a lot of times, if I'm just sitting at home and I will have YouTube on my, you know, HCTV thing, mm-hmm. and I'll go on YouTube and I'll just listen to, there's an outtake from Down the Groove, which is a, a version of uh, God Love If You Want It, which I love. It was supposed to be on there and then they cut it probably because they wanted them to cut something so they could cut my favorite song. <laughs> and, um, uh, and that, there's, um, a 1970 version of, of um, If You See Her Say Hello, which is just, mm-hmm. it, you know, could have been on street legal. Right. Um, just, you know, it's, uh, I'm drawing a blank now, but stuff, oh, yeah, the song Stop Now, a lot of stuff from that era. Um, right. I just go to it as a song every once in a while. I mean, it's like, you know, uh, but as much as I love vinyl, that and I love the ritual and all that, you, you have to be in the right room and, you know, all that. So, um, uh, yeah, but I'd rather. But also, also you have to be in the mood too. I remember, right. I remember when uh, Dylan was touring with Petty and Knocked Out Loaded was coming out, and I wasn't the vinyl those days. Vinyl, uh, CD production was slower, mm-hmm. so right. Knocked Out Loaded came out like the day before I was going to see Tom Petty. So I was like, I have to listen to it. Usually, I don't listen to anybody I'm going to see because I want it to sound fresh. But he wanted another new album, so I, I studied as best I could one night. Knocked out loaded. I went to see him and he didn't do any of the songs on it. <laughs> but um, yeah, and uh, I mean, I like, I like. Um, you want to ramble? Everyone talks about Brownsville Girl. I'm like, right. but uh, all aside too. Um, and even you know, and another thing too is that you, you look at stuff okay, and then someone made fun of it at the, at the conference. Like um, they killed him, which um, uh, with the child chorus. Right. Oh, then, that was Jim. Yeah, and uh, yeah, which is of course you know. I can't say I, I had a different opinion when I first heard it, but of course, I, after a while, I, I think of it. It's like, well, are we 
and no offense, Jim, but are we so cynical that children singing about Martin Luther King and Jesus Christ is a terrible thing? You know what I mean? Right. I mean, it's it's not a skinny tie, but, you know, it's... um, That's fair. uh, You know, know, I don't go to it, uh, but I wouldn't... If I... Well, I I rarely would get up and skip anything on any record ever. No. But, um, uh, you know, it's... there, There is... But again, it's it's you know it's that weird Bob zone that you just say you know what is going on and what is it thought again what is he thinking what is the thought process but you know he and I'm not sure where he was in uh, the, with his family and how old the kids were right. or whatever but you know he's you know it's, it's his friend Chris Christopherson right and um, it, he's there and he's um, uh, singing about heroes with a children's chorus and it's like okay it's not you know manchester 66 like a rolling stone but and but he as he says i've already done that right and he he decided to do it it's like, okay well why it's like well i mean you think about it it's like well it's a very nice thing to do there's still value in yeah. figuring out what he's trying to maybe do or accomplish as an artist in that period. So I'm going to ask you, so tell us about your book, Friends and Other Strangers, Bob Dylan Examined. Okay. Uh, well, from 2009 to 2015, I was writing online something called Bob Dylan Examiner, mm-hmm. and uh, then it went out of business. Uh, so I, I saved as many of the articles as I could, and um, a friend of mine uh, was the Doors Examiner, and he had a publisher for his, uh, it wasn't his writings, but about the doors and other things. His name is Jim Cherry. And I said, do you think they would publish a book on Dylan? He said, sure. We're all worked out. Um, uh, had to think of a theme. So we thought about, uh, you know, people, you know, just, uh, so I think, it, I think it's about 120 people, ranging from musicians to politicians to mm-hmm. a kid who got his, was, got his harmonica from the stage. Um, cool. And, uh, uh, yeah, I just I used to have the time and energy to do all that. So anyway, I compiled that into a book and it's something that uh, you know it's sold hundreds of copies, which is kind of which is pretty good considering you can't get it in the store; you have to order it. Yeah. And um, although I'm going to talk to that magic eye store, you, know, you should. Yeah, oh. I gave him my card. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> absolutely, for sure. In the center too. So um, I was going to say, put it in the center. No, well, I can put it in the center. But <laughs> Ask them to put it in the center. Yeah. So, but you know, uh, I'll, when I get home. All right. Fair point. Um, so, what are you currently working on? I'm working actually just getting back up to speed. <laughs> um, I, uh, you know, I haven't done, the, the things I've done lately uh, were um, things that I got to do. Um, I interviewed Dag Brathen, you know, he is, he had a, he's like, he kept on, whenever I needed any information, he gave it to me. And I figured before uh, Ray Padgett gets to him, I'm gonna <laughs> interview him. <laughs> All right. And I uh, you know, the, the Dylan book, the Dylan, any Dylan album, you know, I, I write about that, but other than that, I've been kind of taking it easy. I'm trying to, uh, um, you know, get back on track. Uh, I don't you know, say it's not something I do for fun, so I do it when it's fun. Okay, that's fair. Uh, so what other music do you listen to, and how does that music relate to Dylan? And you've talked a little bit about that, but how does it all kind of, if, if Dylan is maybe a center point, or, you know, how does that all relate to Dylan? Um, well, these days, uh, how does it relate to Dylan? Well, Dylan's a pretty high bar, <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, yes. uh, and again, I started when you start listening to the Beatles when you're five, and my father loved classical music. Um, yeah, that sort of uh, 
you realize what music can be. Mm-hmm. And um, so, but there's either, there, there's, for the past 20 years, because probably 80% of it has been Beatles related, Dylan related, or Robin Hitchcock related, and um, then the rest is miscellaneous. Although very, very recently, my son, he signed on to YouTube, uh, something music, and, um, and it's like a streaming service. And so what I've been doing is making playlists of stuff that I basically have on singles in the basement. <laughs> and That's a lot cool. of, and what, lot, and also, what kind of things? A lot of things that are, um, I probably even shouldn't mention the names, but it's like, like well, this is things that I, I probably didn't even get at the time, but now they'd be politically correct. I'm going to put those on the list. And I have a playlist of things that are, you know, I listen to my hit, you know, earbuds, and no one knows what I'm doing. All right. It's subversive. <laughs> but I won't tell you if I, they'll cancel me if I give you any titles. We don't, want, we don't want anyone to cancel you. You're delightful. All right, so this might be my last question because I don't want to run out of time and mm. I want to have enough time to close it out. But... Um, what are, is there any particular Dylan albums that affect you differently over the years or there's something that you listen to? I will give a quick example. Um, in the fall when my grandmother was ill and I would drive home the hour from taking care of her to my home, I listened to every version of Not Dark Yet. Just oh, as, not dark yet? Yeah, yeah, as yeah, sort yeah, of a yeah, catharsis yeah. for yeah. the anxiety that I felt mm-hmm. and whatnot. And it was really, really meaningful. Um, sometimes I listen to podcasts. I told Rob Kelly yesterday that yeah. I did. I mean, I and, and you know yourself. And so there's just, but that that song was really meaningful to me in that emotional moment. And I'm wondering, are there any that you connect with, or any that you look back on now and look differently? Sort of like he's looking back at the Mondo Scripto lyrics, mm-hmm. as Laura told us. But I would love to know about that. Well, I, the, the thing that comes to mind is something that happened a while ago. I can pretty much pinpoint what made me think I could write about Dylan by revisiting one of his albums, which was Street Legal, which baffled me when it came out. I, mean, I wasn't even, I was not yet 20, this, the, and I didn't think it was bad, I just didn't get it. Then in 81, I got uh, the second volume of Michael Gray's Song and Dance Man, mm-hmm. and uh, I just found out that they're gonna, they're gonna reissue it as a three-part thing, the, the most recent volume. And, uh, and he said, you know, Street Legal's the second best Dylan album in the 70s. And just, the, just like he had nice things to say about self-portrait, which I just heard was a joke. Right. And so I, um, I, he, he made me open my mind to what things could be. So I used him as a blueprint of what to think about music. And then I came up with my own, uh, my own opinions, obviously. Sometimes mm-hmm. I disagree with him. Um, but I, I always find that whatever he says sticks in my head, even if right. I, disagree with, I disagree with him. But I'd say that the, the moment I thought that I could do this was when he talked about Street Legal. In the first song, they say, uh, where the stitches are still mending, and the last song says, remind me to show you the scars. And I thought, it's all like a puzzle, and I want to figure out the puzzle. Oh, that's beautiful. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Harold, before we close out? Um, no. Uh, <laughs> yes, peace, love. Um, uh, yeah, everyone love each other. There's, uh, everyone, that's what uh, George Harrison said. Um, yeah, uh, just be, everyone just be nice to each other. That is the basic rule in my classroom. I'm like, just be nice. Yeah. It's, it's tough enough out there. Just can't we just be nice to each other yeah, right, here? Right. Yeah. Um, I've enjoyed getting to know you a little bit more at this conference, working with you on the panel, and I'm so grateful that you sat down with me today. Um, I, I'm going to close out now, so I'll let you have the absolute last word. I'll say goodbye and let Harold say whatever he'd like to say, even if it's be kind again. 
uh, well, I want to thank you, Erin. Uh, I won't go through it here, but off, offline, very, very uh, nice and generous things. And um, my that, that, meant, that meant a lot to me and uh, my family. And um, It was my pleasure yeah. and privilege. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, um, yeah, fuck cancer. That's what I can say. I'm going to high five him on that. <laughs> All right, we're signing off. Thank you for listening to the Dylan Tons Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to have the Dylan Tons sent directly to your inbox. And share the Dylan Tons on social media.